Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The HHW LOD Podcast Network proudly presents Real Heroes, the podcast that takes a critical look at comic book movies. The good. I am Iron Man. The bad. I punish the guilty. And the worthless. I am the law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Heroes, our special episode on Man of Steel. And we are one person short of a New York Comic Con 2011 reunion show here because this is Russ and I've got here with me Jim, Jordan, and very special guest, my buddy, Mr. Glenn. How are you? Hey, pretty good. Thanks for having me. Always. Good to have you back. Yeah. Been a while. And uh, hopefully nobody breaks glass and cuts themselves wide open this time. That would be, that would be extra special. <laughs> Typically on Real Heroes, we do comic book movies, and we usually, as most of you know, we spin the wheel, whatever randomly comes up, that's what we talk about next time. Um, we have had Cowboys and Aliens kind of on hold for a while now, uh, just with all the stuff, the reboot of the feeds and the restarting of the site and everything else, and then all the cool comic book movies coming out. So last episode was Iron Man 3. This episode will be the Zack Snyder film, Man of Steel. So this is another one that, that has been... A long time coming, you know, we've all had, we've all been kind of waiting for, you know, them to reboot Superman after Superman Returns. So I think this was kind of a welcome, uh, a, a welcome thing to have happen. And not to speak too far out of school, but I think our next real heroes after this will probably be uh, The Wolverine, uh, the James Mangold movie coming out at the end of the summer, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, that will be the next current, current one we do. Uh, so this will be a little different than than the normal, you know, way we do this. We usually have a lot of clips uh, and things like that that we use as talking points. Uh, because the movie is so new, it's kind of hard. There were several clips that I really wanted to grab, but they weren't either in the trailer or in, you know, official clips they showed on TV. I tried grabbing them off of YouTube. Uh, so we do have one that we'll, we'll get to a little later, but uh, there's a couple I think we'll just probably talk about them rather than play them, so... Uh, well, Russ, if you want the rest of the clips, I will find them. <laughs> You're good like that, Jordan. <laughs> so like we always do on Real Heroes, we'll start with giving the rundown on the numbers side of things. Um, and luckily, the, the way Box Office Mojo is Johnny on the spot lately, we're recording this the Tuesday after the movie premieres on June the 18th to give you a little context as to where we're at. Man of Steel was released on June 14th of 2013, in case you're listening to this in the far-flung future. It had an opening weekend gross of $116 million. Now, I've heard that it, it was up to 125, and I think they're taking out the Thursday afternoon showings, because I think they actually, um, Walmart did some, like, pre-advance, you could order a ticket, uh, showings and so it made like over eight million dollars from just just in those Walmart screenings. Um, so depending on who you ask, it's it's anywhere from 116 to 125 million. Either way, that's a phenomenal opening weekend for a movie. I think what'll be interesting to see in the weeks and months to come is if it has legs like Avengers did last summer. I mean, Avengers was in the theaters almost a month, still showing on a lot of screens, still bringing in a lot of money. I'm wondering if Man of Steel is going to have that kind of legs, considering the kind of mixed reviews it's been getting and stuff. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Uh, on the foreign side, it was able to pull in 
so far, $73 million, and the domestic gross, like I said, as of Tuesday, which I think includes Monday's numbers, is 141. So the total worldwide box office gross, you know, after five days into it here, is $214 million. Not Not bad at all. The budget on this one was really huge, though. Um, $225 million estimated budget. And then when you consider marketing on top of that, we're, we're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 325 or 350. Uh, so this movie's probably going to have to make somewhere between six and 700 million worldwide for it to be considered, you know, profitable or break even. And I, I think at this point, that's pretty conceivable because while critically it's not doing so well, the audience seems to be more happy with it. And uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it as of now. And, and I think this, this will pretty, stay pretty flat because they've got over 225 official ratings at this point, which is usually about where these things hold out. Um, and it's at 56% on the critic side, so it's not very fresh. Um, but the audience uh, freshness rating is 82%. One of the things we've noticed with a lot of these movies that have low uh, critical scores, the audience score seems to be a little more kind to it. But this is a pretty big imbalance between, uh, between the two of them. It's interesting, too. Metacritic has it at 55. You know, they, they cast a pretty wide net, too, you know, um, you know as, as much as Rotten Tomatoes does. And yet the uh, the viewer rating on IMDb, just like uh, what you were saying, is 8.2 out of 10. So, like you're saying, the audience is responding a lot better to the movie than the critics. Yeah, definitely, which I think is a good thing. You know, some of the critical comments that I've, I've read have been um, a little unfair, I think. Uh, you know, Glenn, it's funny, usually we don't really talk too much uh, about these things before, you know, we, we do a show. Sometimes we'll email back and forth. Glenn and I actually talked about it quite a bit last night, and you were saying, like, you were listening to the Entertainment Weekly channel on this on the uh, XM radio, and they just really were unkind to it and, and kind of unfairly unkind, it sounded like. Oh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, the guy there was saying that, he felt, uh, and it was one of the editors, I don't remember his name, but uh, he, he felt that Superman Returns was a better movie, which I just laughed at. My wife thinks that, actually. My wife, after seeing Man of Steel, preferred Superman Returns. Wow. <laughs> I know, I just kind of looked at her. Um, well, we'll, get, we'll talk. I think uh, the, the worst thing about this movie is it's in the shadow of the Donner movies, and it's in the shadow of... The fran- you know, the franchise that came before it, you know what I mean? Yes. Batman Begins really much had to, had to set its own tone, break itself apart from, you know, the Burton stuff and, and, and especially the Schumacher sh- stuff that had come before it. With, uh, Man of Steel, I think that's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to set their own tone, trying to break away from what's gone before. And, uh, like you said, the, the, the critics I think are unfair. Some critics, and especially some really geeky critics, like, I don't know if you guys read the Newsarama review. They gave it like three out of ten and just lambasted it. Uh, I don't know if you guys have checked that out, but um, the uh, the uh, especially the geek press it seems like have just really um, un- I think unfairly too. I mean, the movie I think you should judge it on its own merits. You know, you shouldn't say, well, it's not this, it's not that, it's not Christopher Reeve, it's not Donner, it's not you know. You're right. It's not any of those things. It's a new take. It's a fresh take. And I think as much as Batman Begins had to move out of the shadow of the Burton and Schumacher movies, so does this movie have to move out of the shadow of Donner. Well, it's interesting, you know, we talked about a similar thing on Jersey Shore when we reviewed the movie, and when you look at those reviews, and I, I didn't, I don't think I read the news of one, but after I saw the movie, I did go and read a bunch of reviews, spoiler-filled reviews, spoiler-free reviews, anything I could get my hands on just to see what diff- people's different takes on it were, and I was really intrigued and kind of mystified by how, you know, even within the negative and positive reviews, of which there's a lot of each, 
the things people liked or didn't like are all over the map. Like, you could read five negative reviews, and they would all be negative for different reasons. You could read five positive reviews, and they'd all be positive for different reasons. People would either praise the score, or I never even noticed the score, or they'd hate the Krypton, Krypton scenes, or they'd love the Krypton scenes in which there were more. I've never seen, and I'm sure there are other movies this divisive, but I've never seen reviews quite as divisive. And then when we recorded our episode, our reviews, and there was four of us just like tonight, were all over the map as well. And I was really interested by how, you know, I mean, it's one movie, you know, you have an objective thing on the screen, everybody sees the same thing, is getting so many disparate subjective receptions, which happens, but still, this is so many, it's so divergent, I was really interested by that. Yeah. So, talk a little about cast and crew. Uh, This one was directed, of course, by Zack Snyder, who, prior to this, has done uh, a a movie that is very close to to this crew, which is Watchmen. Um, Before that, he did 300. Um, he did Sucker Punch as yeah, well. He did the Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah, the Dawn yeah. of the Dead remake, which was kind of like his, I guess that was re- really kind of where he first came on the scene and, and really got that notoriety, which put him on the top to do 300, which, uh, I, th- I think we all collectively really, really enjoy 300. Um, and then I think some of us have mixed feelings when it comes to e- either or Watchmen and, and Sucker Punch. But the guy, whether you like, his movies are not like his movies. He can visually tell a story. I mean, whether you like the story he's trying to tell or appreciate, you know, what's going on, I, I, I think one thing you can't really accuse him of is not being able to visually tell a story. One thing about Zack Snyder that I found interesting in him pair, pairing him with Christopher Nolan is that Christopher Nolan is so anti-CGI that he goes out of his way to do everything with practical effects and, and prosthetics and everything else, especially if you look at the making ofs and, you know, the Inception Blu-ray or, or some of the other movies he's made, he goes out of his way not, not to use CGI. Whereas Zack Snyder has really embraced CGI in a huge way and using it in subtle ways, like, like we saw in Watchmen with, you know, the blood dripping exactly on the simoleon as we see in the comic, you know, things like that. And in really elaborate ways, like we saw in Sucker Punch with the giant samurai robots and stuff. You know, even if you didn't like Sucker Punch, you have to admit it was visually arresting. He definitely has his own visual style, but it's so weird to see these, like, two dichotomous, uh, uh, directors, you know, joining forces for this movie it was written by david goyer who again with the christopher nolan connection i mean that's kind of where this all came in and and all these these folks kind of got paired was a lot of it just had to do with the with the trilogy that they that nolan and goyer created on the batman side um so he is credited with the screenplay and uh nolan and goyer are 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 credited with the story so the two of them kind of it, it sounds like kind of brainstormed it out and goyer's is the one that actually spit out the script. And I, I think it, it's it's actually a pretty decent script. I mean, we've been kind of... Especially for Goyer. When he yeah. when he writes scripts by himself, it's it's at least enough to make me trepidatious because he puts in a lot of eye-rolly stuff oftentimes. Yeah. It, and this is the third Goyer movie we've done on Real Heroes. Exactly. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. We did Blade Trinity. And now this, so like, right, like right, Jordan exactly. is saying, you know, it's enough to give you pause. When he writes with one of the Nolans, like actively writes, like he does, he wrote, he co-wrote the Batman movies with Jonah or Jonathan Nolan, depending on which day of the week it is. Um, you know, I, I have no problem with him, but when he's doing it by himself, like, the, you know, just the actual wording of scripts, that's where, you know, it can be problematic. And the score is by Hans Zimmer, and... I I love the score. I'm just going to stop you right there and say this was an amazing score for me. See, I and I have recently 
like everything Hans Zimmer puts out just really just knocks me over. I mean, I love what he did with the Batman stuff. I love what he did with Inception. I mean, his work with Nolan in general really just literally blows me away on the score side. This one, I think, was the first time I was really underwhelmed. And I'll be honest with you, I think a lot of it just has to do with my John Williams bias when it comes to Superman. And I I think that's the biggest problem I have with trying to, to like the... It, it was a little too muted. I didn't really feel like we had a, quote, Superman theme. I, I didn't feel like it just kind of... I don't know. It just it just didn't didn't grab me like the other. So I'm I'm kind of like the anti Jordan for for this one. <laughs> well, I've got a lot to say about the score, but I'll save it for later, um, including a theme because I, I actually have an interest. I don't know if that thesis is the right word, but I have some thoughts on the actual theme musically of the movie. Gotcha. I thought it was kind of a mixed bag. Parts of it I thought worked, parts of it didn't. So I guess I'm somewhere in between you guys. <laughs> Yeah, it's a gym sandwich. Yeah, I'm there too. I mean, uh, I I enjoyed what I heard, but uh, I'll tell you what, I, I kind of missed that original score. <laughs> it's hard not to. So let's get to the cast. So Henry Cavill cast as uh, Superman, Clark Kent, Kal El, kind of an unknown for the most part. Uh, I mean, he was in that show on Showtime called The Tudors. He's done a, a little bit of work here and there uh, since then, but this is kind of, I guess, his big breakout role. I mean, much like. Christopher Reeve, much like you know every pretty much every other character that's uh, you know taken this uh, this character on screen, this is kind of their big breakout. And I, I was I was pretty impressed with his performance overall. I think he definitely had the look, um, no no question about it. He he definitely looked the part. I, I like the variance that we got with him, where he you know had the kind of the scruffy look and then the full beard, and you know they they you know kind of gave him that younger teenage look with that crazy bushy hair, you know during that tornado scene. But overall, I, th- I think a good choice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought he, you know he really looked the part. He had the kind of intensity that Superman should have, I guess. And um, it just I, I thought he, I thought it was a good choice. Uh, I, I saw him in the Tudors actually, along with uh, Jonathan Rhys Davies. He's going to be playing Dracula in the upcoming NBC uh, series. It's uh, I think debuting in about a month. But um, it, that was a good series uh, too. And uh, I, I thought he was good. I thought he was good Superman. I, I bought it. You know. I think I said this back when pictures of him in the suit started coming out. Um, so months and months, if not over a year ago. But uh, this Superman was the first Superman that visually could actually mess you up. Like, superpowers or not, he could, with you know a punch or two, have you on the floor. And that is, for me, visually what really worked uh, for him as the character. I thought he was fine acting as well, but for me it was... Uh, almost more important that he had that that frame that could actually stand toe to toe with a Zod or with anybody else, any other heavy hitter in the DC universe. This guy looked like a superhero. Yeah, I would agree too. I mean, he, he had the physicality for it, and uh, I mean that one scene uh, with his shirt off—he uh, looked like a, a Superman. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The fourth man in the fire there. You know, it's funny. I was, I was looking on, it was either CBR or Newsarama. I can't remember which site, but they had an, they had a bunch of infographics that were kind of going tail of the tape between the re, Christopher Reeve and Henry Cavill and like Tim Burton or uh, Michael Keaton and uh, Christian Bale. Do you know that both Christopher Reeve and Henry Cavill had the same weight? Christopher Reeve is six, was six three. Henry Cavill is six one. But for the role, they both weighed like two eleven or two nineteen. I think was is what their their actual weight was, and I I found that almost hard to believe given 
the physique differential between the two of them. But uh, I guess it's all toning and sculpting and all that good stuff. Amy Adams. I think this is probably my favorite Lois Lane ever. I was really, I really was impressed with her performance. I was never, as we talked about when we did uh, Superman the movie originally, I was never really impressed with Margot Kidder. I like Terry Hatcher. I think, Jim, I'm kind of in your court that it's a really close tie that Dana Delaney is probably the best uh, interpretation of Lois Lane there ever has been. Um, but, but at least on film, to me, I think Amy Adams um, really knocked it out of the park. I mean, they really treated her character well. Uh, they didn't make her stupid. They really put the reporter in the reporter. I mean, she was investigative. She was, you know, doing her job and, and digging for the story, which I think sometimes Lois Lane can be portrayed um, a little too aloof and a little too clueless, given how smart she is in the job she does. So I was I was really impressed with both the writing and the acting uh, on this one. Yeah, I thought really acting across the board was extremely solid, except for maybe Lara. I wasn't thrilled with the majority of her performance, but she's only in a few minutes of the movie. Everybody else, I thought, nailed it. Yeah, I mean, uh, Amy Adams, for me, I liked her a lot, too. I also liked the fact that she had a Smallville connection. And then uh, I, I got to say that uh, as much as I liked her Lois Lane, uh, for me, Erica Durance was, was a really good Lois Lane, even though it's True. not, you know, in the same continuity. But I've still got Dana Delaney at the top of my list. But I'd have to put Amy Adams right there, probably number two or three. I thought she was good. I thought she was a good foil for Cavill. I know a lot of, uh, I've heard a lot of reviews that said they didn't think they had chemistry, but I thought considering they were just getting to know each other, that they kind of, uh, did have, you know, enough chemistry for that situation. I thought they played well off one another. We, and she only fell out of the building, what, twice? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then a spaceship as well. Okay, so that's three. The times they had to catch her, so. I was wondering how many times they would use that in the, in the movie. So another one that had big shoes to fill, I think, in this one, uh, Michael Shannon played General Zod. And I'd like to really quick, before you say anything about this, I'd like I, the best thing I heard about this was from um, comic book artist Tom Scioli. I, I just saw him over at Heroes Con and stuff, and he, he wrote on Facebook that he thought that Michael Shannon's General Zod looked like he stepped out of a Jack Kirby drawing. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. I would totally agree with that. I thought that was the perfect statement because he totally does. I mean, he's got that face, you know, just kind of intense face, you know, a squared, yeah. squared face and the, all the weird tech and everything. But yeah, I just, I thought he was pitch perfect. It, it, probably my favorite performance in the whole movie other than Russell Crowe. And apparently he never blinks once. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I read that somewhere that he doesn't blink a single time in the movie and his eyes. I mean, just Michael Shannon's got kind of a weird head and face in general. Yeah. Um, but his eyes are almost always wide open, like cr kind of crazy eyes, but not quite. Just just enough to let you know that there's something off about this guy. Well, it's, I don't know if you guys watched any Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, yeah. But he was like that crazy revenue agent in that. And he, you know, was kind of like a guy on the edge in that, and like very intense, very much, you know, like Zod in this. And yet in the movie about the Runaways, he played like this kind of hippy-dippy uh, you know, stoner rock manager from the 70s. It was like a total, you know, 180 from what you normally see in a Michael Shannon movie. And I'm very interested in a Michael Shannon performance. I mean, and I'm very interested to see his performance as, uh, as the Iceman in that movie coming up with him and Winona Ryder, uh, with Ray Liotta. I don't know if you guys have seen the trailer for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's based on, based on, uh, Ted Kuklinski, that guy who killed like, you know, hundreds of people. But yeah, he's, he's definitely one of my, um, my new, newer favorite actors. I thought he, his performance was really good. Was it kind of scenery chewing? Yes, but it had to be. It was General Zod. You know, he's 
he's competing against the memory of Terrence Stamp for God's sake. You know, he's got to he's got to do everything <laughs> he can. I gotta say, from uh, from some of the reviews that I read, uh, a lot of them were were kind of, I guess, knocking him and that he just didn't have, or I guess that he was going through the motions. I mean, I agree with you. I liked him, and uh, he was convincing Zod. Yeah, and they did a really good job of explaining his character. I mean, he wasn't. They didn't try and go over the top or campy. I mean, he was he was over the top, but there was a reason for it. Um, and, and when we get to the, to the movie movie itself, um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. And, and one of the things I appreciated with the script itself, but I, I think he just did a fantastic job. And I think he, he definitely, the, the, the way that he came to his end, and we'll, we'll get to that later, uh, I think again speaks to, to the way they, they decided the route they went with this character and very, very impressive. Anjay Trow, and I'm sure I butchered her name, so I apologize for that. Um, as Feora, uh, and I thought she again a, a really good job. She she I think of of anybody that was maybe channeling or uh, close to the character that came before her. I think she maybe came close to being kind of like that Ursa type character, where she was uh, you know kind of over the top, and you know the way she went one on one with uh, Chris Maloney's Colonel Hardy kind of had you know that that touch to to the way that um, that she was portrayed before but but again i th- i think she was it was kind of cool having two villains that were kind of front and center you know with with all this action i loved i mean it's not necessarily an acting critique but i loved the one part in smallville when she's basically um strobing between the soldiers as she fights them yes that i mean like i said not an acting thing but just visually that was awesome and really endeared me to her character i mean still a villain but i was like that is a cool villain all I gotta say is, after this performance, she's on my list. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's um, so next, Russell Crowe as Jor-El, and I, I again, it's kind of a kind of a love fest as far as uh, the actors and the characters they're portraying. But but again, you know, very different from you know Marlon Brando, which is completely fine. A lot more caring Jor-El, I think, in this. I mean, the Jor, the Brando Jor-El, while you kind of got the, you know, he was doing this for his son and he cared about Krypton. You really, you really got the sense that he, he was really going the extra mile and doing it for not only his son, but for his people. And, and I thought it was really cool how he didn't just have that bit in the beginning, but he is actually kind of a participant throughout the movie. And it wasn't, it, to me at least, it didn't come across as cheesy or forced or anything like that. It, it made sense given not only what, what they've done in this movie, but just the fact that that's always kind of been a, since the the Donner flick, they've always kind of done the visage of Jor-El and have him use the Kryptonian technology to be a part of, of Cal's life moving forward. So I, I like that he got to, you know, flex his acting muscles, his action muscles, I should say, again. But yeah, I, th- I think he's he's done a good job. He's been a really big flag waver for this movie, too. I mean, he's been out there, you know, just in interviews and Twitter and everything else, just, you know, praising Henry Cavill, praising the movie, praising Zack Snyder. You know, I, I've I've been a fan of Russell Crowe's for quite a while, and I know, you know, publicly he can kind of come in and out of the of you know the positive side of the public's opinion of himself. But but I, I definitely think this is a, a a standout performance for him, and a very restrained performance for him too, which I was very pleased to see. I was worried when he was cast as Jarrell that it was going to be the you know acting to the rafters, you know, screaming at the top of his lungs, uh, Russell Crowe. But it wasn't. This was a very reserved 
very thoughtful performance from him, and I was very impressed. It was a little weird when he threw that phone at Zod, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, I'm not a Russell Crowe fan. I have nothing against him. I'm just not normally into his performance. Um, and I really bought him as Jor-El. I thought it was very cool that they went with the war- more uh, warrior scientist version of Jor-El that we've seen occasionally in the comics. I love that he was throughout the entire movie, particularly uh, his scenes with Lois, where he was kind of, you know, force controlling the ship. Basically, that whole sequence I, I thought was really, really cool how they used him. He he almost seemed to be, I mean, granted, he was a computer program at that point, but he almost seemed to be taking glee in what he was being able to do to help his people and help her. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was an he was an active participant. And, and I mean, he was also helping his son, which is, you know, something that when he let him go, he kind of figured he'd never, ever see him again. Not that he actually saw him, but, but uh, I mean, he was there to take care of him and help out rather than just sit there in the fortress of solitude saying, I am your dad. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Diane Lane and Kevin Costner as mom, Pa Kent. I've always been a fan of Diane Lane. I, I think she's, she's fantastic. And I think they used her, both of them actually kind of in the right amount. I think we, we definitely got more of Pa Kent than we did uh, Glenn Ford in, in the Donner flicks. Um, you know, obviously not as much as, as we've seen him in, in, you know, the adventures of Lois and Clark or in, in Smallville. But I, th- I think he did a good job. I mean, there's a clip that, that I'll play later that really accentuates, um, his, the character of Pa Kent, what it meant in this movie and, and what he was all about. But I was really afraid that when they cast, ca- cast Kevin Costner, that it was going to be like, Oh, look, there's Kevin Costner. And I, surprisingly, it, it, it wasn't as, you know, I mean, obviously it's still very recognizable, but it, it, it didn't come across, it didn't end up being stunt casting as much as I thought it would be. I'm glad they had an actor of that caliber. I mean, hate him or love him. Kevin Costner's a pretty decent actor. And this, the tornado scene, I think needed a good actor to sell that scene because that was like, for me, one of the emotional pivots of the entire script. Yeah. You know, where, um, you know, he's kind of just motions to Clark to not save him because, you know, that would give away the secret they're trying to keep. And I, I think, you know, just the look on his face and the, 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 the hand gesture he made to him was, was like really, you know, solid acting on his part. So I'm, I was impressed with his, his uh, role as well. Well, and, and pretty much every single line he had in the movie carried emotional weight and had to be very subtle, both in the writing and the delivery to convey, you know, his point of view and what, what he was conveying to Clark. And I thought it, it came across well in, in every single scene he was in. And the same goes for Diane Lane, although she had a little bit less, or she had a, a few more lines that didn't really have the emotional weight, uh, just by their nature. But when they did, uh, she conveyed them extremely well. Yeah, and I gotta say, it's a, it's a different type of Pac Kent, I think, that, at least that I'm used to seeing. And, uh, Russ, I think, uh, the clip that you're gonna play later definitely is at least for me something that I was very surprised to hear come out of his mouth. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think he gives us context too. I mean, he definitely has that whole whole fatalism thing that the Glenn Ford uh, pocket had in the first Superman movie about you know Clark being put there for a reason, you know, and it, his destiny was to find out what his reason for being there was, you know. Yeah. I mean, that thread was still very much there, but yeah, as far as the whole thing, you know, should I have just let them die? Well, maybe, you know. Um, the whole thing about trying to keep him hidden so they don't take him away. I mean, that's, that was a whole new uh, dimension to that character that we really haven't seen too much. Yeah. So I guess quickly to kind of round it out, um, Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White, which I thought was a, was an awesome choice. I mean, I love Lawrence Fishburne. I, I wish we could have gotten to see more of him, but 
the interactions that he had with Lois were were really good. I like the whole uh, you know dynamic about you know not you know not carrying the story and that you know the whole alien thing was crazy and and just we even got to see a little bit of a heroic side of Perry White, which is not something we're used to doing. Usually he's septuagenarian white guy, you know that that's <laughs> running around the audience with a cigar in his mouth. So. So I think I think don't call me chief. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think it was kind of a I think it was a welcome breath of fresh air. As much as I love Jackie Cooper as as Perry White and and the Donner flicks, um, I, I think that was that was a, a a smart move. Yeah, he weirdly had both more and less than I expected him uh, to be able to do in this movie. Like like you said with the uh, the I don't know if I'd call it an action scene, but the the rescue scene later on, yeah. not something you expect to see him to do. I thought handled very well with him and both other actors in that scene and really helped, um, gra- I don't know if ground the scene or ground the destruction is the right term, but it really helped, all those scenes helped ground that this is not just a big fight. There, you know, there there are consequences to this and there is there are very real lives here that you care about. Even with how little those three characters are in the film, you really feel it for them when they are convinced they're going to die. Yeah. This is a character that I really thought was going to have a cameo. I really didn't think he was going to be a big player in the movie at all. And that's uh, Christopher Maloney as Colonel Hardy. And I, I really, I really liked his character. Um, I really liked the fact that he kind of had, you know, that, that when we kind of got to the climax of the movie, he had a role to play and Superman had a role to play. And that bit when, when all that stuff happens in Smallville and he, you know, he initially tells him to attack all three of the, you know, of the aliens. And, uh, you know, after that stuff happens and he kind of saves his life and they're ready to start attacking Superman again, and he says, you know, hold your fire. He's like, this man is not our enemy. I just, I just thought it was, it was really well done. And just the, the interaction between him and Feora too, especially at the end, I just thought it, it just really, really well done. I, 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 I was kind of sad to see his character, you know, die at the end, but I, I totally, you know, get why they did it, and it and it made sense in the context of the movie. But um, but I was really impressed with with uh with that role. By the way, anybody who only knows um, Chris Maloney as the Tenant Stabler or as, uh, as or from this movie should check out a movie called uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah, or uh, isn't he? Doesn't he have a pretty sizable role in Harold and, in the first Harold and Kumar? I'm not sure. Actually, he might have it in both the first two as two yeah, different characters. I think, I think you're right. He, he's a gifted comedic actor, and most people don't realize that because uh, he's he's more well known for things like this or Law and Order or um, what's the the HBO series? Um, Oz. Oz, yeah, yeah. Um, and lastly, I've got I've got two more that we'll we'll go through real quick. Uh, Richard Schiff, uh, you know, great veteran character actor as Dr. M. L. Hamilton. Again, another character I wish they would have stuck around because I I love, especially in the burn era, I love the what they what they did with Hamilton being kind of this person that you know Clark slash Superman can go to to kind of help him understand his powers, you know, to kind of um, you know almost like a confidant type, you know. But again, I th- you know that maybe works better in a serialized uh, format than than in a sequential movie format. Well, what this looks like is, is they're setting the table. I mean, obviously it's the first movie to, to hopefully, you know, spawn a new franchise and then spawn a second movie. And they're building, and with this movie, I know they don't have as much screen time as you would like, but, you know, Emil Hamilton and Steve Lombard, who is in it, you know, and, uh, and, and Perry White will have, a, I'm sure, have a greater role to play in the, in the inevitable sequel. So they're, I feel like they're just kind of, you know, um, making a, a built-in, um, you know, supporting cast for the next movie. Yeah. 
But yeah. So last we will we will not see Doctor Hamilton in the sequels. But um, then the other one that I thought was funny is uh, Alessandro Giuliani, who um, just played some kind of random tech guy in the movie. He actually played Doctor Emil Hamilton in Smallville. So I thought that was that was kind of a funny connection that he uh, showed up back in this movie. Um, and then, of course, he's he played uh, Sergeant Gaeta in Battlestar Galactica. That was kind of probably his his most the role he's most famous for, if, if if not Smallville, definitely Battlestar Galactica. And he was also in Watchmen for a hot second. Yes. He's got a few more scenes in the extended cut. Yes. But, and uh, speaking of Battlestar, Tamo Pennicott was in this movie yes. for uh, you know a brief... Yeah, <laughs> for like a nanosecond. Yeah. Two Battlestar actors, two Matrix actors. Two Smallville actors. Yeah. Yeah. A, w- a West Wing and a Law and Order SVU. Hey, <laughs> I have a full house. <laughs> what do I want? Hey, the gang's all here. All right, and I'm surprised you haven't mentioned uh, Jenny Yeah, Olsen, that's what I wanted to know. Because there was all that hubbub when they first, and it first kind of got leaked that that's who she was playing. And, you know, there was, most people I think were cool with it, but there was a few naysayers. And then I thought it went over pretty well in the movie. But what about uh, uh, P. Ross, manager of IHOP? Yeah, War, War Lana Lang was in the movie for and Whitney. You know, a brief second. Whitney Fordham was in it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So a lot of these these kind of uh, ancillary characters, if you blink, you miss them, and they never really called out. But but yeah, definitely N- nice little little callbacks to to various incarnations of Superman over over time. Um, okay, so that's cast, crew, numbers, all that good stuff. Thirty minutes into it, we'll talk about the movie itself. So, as our guest, Mister Green, uh, why don't you go first and just kind of kick us off and tell us what you know what you thought. You know, where where do you want to start? Oh, uh, I guess first I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'll admit I'm a, I'm a big Superman fanboy, and uh, be it that uh, you know Superman three and four really was bad, I'd still sit through and watch it just because it's Superman. Uh, so that's that's where I'm coming from. I took my son to go see it, and and uh, he loved it. I mean, he's in fact he's ready for the second movie already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, uh, again, overall very good. You know, Russ. One of the things we had talked about is, is uh, I kind of missed. Uh, you know, back in Superman one and and even Superman Returns, when Superman's introduced to the uh, to the world, you know, for me there was there was just a lot of awe and wonder when that happened. It was very, you know, they were very fun scenes. It was fun to see, you know, people, uh, you know, people say, "Oh my gosh," you know, or like when he catches Lois and she says, "Who's got you?" You know, all that stuff. For me. I love watching those scenes, and, and seriously, I, I go back just to watch them, just because I think they're so cool. And and I would say I feel that the movie kind of missed part of that, and I would have really liked to see a, a little bit more of that before it, you know, Zod showed up and kind of, you know, blew the whole "there's an alien among you." I mean, other than that, I mean, I, I mean, I, I can't say you know more good things about it. I mean, I, I would say that, uh, you know, the fight scenes, there's been a lot of talk about it being, you know, over the, you know, a little bit over. And uh, you know what, I'd agree with it. But, you know, the thing is, these are two superhero gods fighting, and I expect there to be a lot of uh, damage and, and uh, you know, very frantic uh, uh, action. And, and I, I think I think they did very well with it. I mean, it wasn't you know, uh, had they gone a Superman two-way where, you know, people complained that it didn't seem like there were, you know, two superpowered people fighting, I think they captured it here very well. Talking about the action a little bit, one of the things, and 
I saw, and maybe this is a good time to talk about the 3D a little bit, because I think, I, I did see it in 3D on the big Cinemark XD screen, and I don't know if maybe, you know, we've all talked about 3D and, and presentations and stuff, and to me it just seems like that's where 3D, conventional 3D suffers, is a lot of hyper action. Uh, you tend to lose that uh, definition, that fluidity. Um, so some of it for me was there was a lot of really cool stuff going on, and it happened so fast and so frantic that I felt like I just couldn't soak it in. Like I couldn't absorb it because it was, it was all just kind of going by so fast. Um, and there were times where it worked really, really well. I mean, Jordan, like you were talking about when Feora was fighting those, those troopers and it was almost just like, uh, like she was teleporting. She was moving so fast. Um, which is how you would expect somebody with that kind of power to move. Um, but there were sometimes it was just hard to make out exactly what was going on. Because things were happening so much, and I, I, I think maybe if it would have been pulled back just a little bit, um, you know, that we could have, I guess, taken it in more and, and and had more of a sense of what was really going on than if the you know blink you miss it and the background's whizzing by so fast. Um, but again, it's it's kind of one of those six and one half dozen the other. You know, if you don't have that kind of 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 a hyper connecti- connect kineticness to it. Then people gripe and say, oh, you know, it's just, you know, it's like it, it doesn't feel like two super people fighting. And then if you have too much, then people are like, oh, there's too much action. So it, it's one of those things I think you can't please everybody. But, I mean, I definitely appreciate it more than um, the way that it was done in Superman 2 or even, you know, we didn't really get any of it at all in Superman Returns. But um, didn't get, get it, much of anything there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, what about those great fight scenes in Superman 4? Uh, was nuclear man. <laughs> I mean, come on, dude. I've tried to. I, I hope to. I have a secret hope deep, deep in my heart that we end up getting that on the wheel of fate sometime. <laughs> Just so you guys, so you guys would have to sit through and watch it. Cause I've already seen it. Yeah. All right. Uh, two, two major problems, minor problems. I don't know. I had two problems. First of all, I'm tired of all alien tech having to look like Prometheus. Okay. <laughs> all right. Can we have different art direction on the alien tech, please? I don't care. You know, it's just like every every movie now, it has to have that, like, H.R. Giger kind of techno-organic, you know, um, curvy lines and stuff. Like, that scout ship looked like it was straight out of, like, you know, the, the space jockey's uh, milieu. So, I just, I'm, I'm tired of that aesthetic. Please, let's do something else. Thank you. Number two, personally, I thought the third act was about a half hour too long. And I think they could have easily, as, as, as much spectacle and as bold and as much action as all those scenes were... It could have easily been judiciously edited. Edited down 20, 30 minutes out of that third act would have would have really tightened that movie up. I think really made it a, a home run for me. I just thought the disaster porn went on kind of long. I kept expecting... The the thing that kind of was weird for me is I kept expecting Superman to catch the buildings as they fell, but he never did. Yeah. Um, it just seemed like you know there were so many shots of, of buildings being destroyed and everything. And I love the actual fighting between... You know, Superman and Zod, because it's something I've wanted to see ever since I was a little kid and saw it in Superman 2, and it's like very underwhelmed by those special effects, obviously. I mean, they're, they were good for their time, but they're very not that great compared to this. I mean, the fight was great. I just think it could have really, I thought it, the third act went on a little long. And I thought, it, you know, it easily could have taken 20, 30 minutes out of there. It would have been a tighter film, it would have been a two hour runtime, and uh, I think it would have been a better movie for it. Other, other than that, I really enjoyed it. I, it's funny, I was reading something today that apparently, originally, 
the way that was supposed to end was Zod was supposed to get sucked into the Phantom Zone just like everybody else. Um, and Snyder was just like, no, it's, it's just that they, they just felt like it was too quick, too easy that it didn't have that kind of punctuation at the end of the sentence kind of thing. Um, and they gave it the ending it did. Um, which, I, which they should have. I mean, yeah, I think they made the right decision if that was actually the case. I mean, so do I. I mean, if you read the comics, I mean, really, you know, I guess I could be wrong, but the only person that he actually ever killed was Zod. And I guess, the two others that were with him. And, and I think it sets up an interesting thing going forward. I'm, I'm sorry no, um, to step on you, but I think it sets up an interesting thing going forward and having known that he had to kill Zod, you know, that he's going to be even more, you know, in Super, in Man of Steel 2, he's going to be even, you know, that much more conscious of how much damage he causes, you know what I mean? Or how, you know, whether someone dies or not on his watch, I think that's really going to weigh on him in the sequel. And I think that, you know, the people that are griping about that destruction now, when it comes back, almost like in Iron Man 3, where, where you know, Tony Stark kind of had PTSD, I think it's going to be something that lingers in Superman's minds, like, you know, as he's saving people or fighting people or whatever, it's going to be something that's more, you know, prevalent. It's like, hey, you know, I don't want that to happen again. I don't want to have to kill again, you know. I think that's going to be interesting going forward to the sequel, uh, the status quo at the end of this movie. Yeah, and I hope they do it. I mean, I'm hoping that's exactly why they put that in there, because, you know, in, in the books, I mean, he ended up getting a split personality out of it and ended up leaving Earth. Now, I doubt we'll ever see something like that. I think that takes it out of the realm of, of what they want to do. But I would sure hope that we do see some psychological uh, repercussions from him actually killing. I mean, it would make sense, too, that it would be, that would be motivate him even more not to, to make sure nobody died on his watch. You know what I mean? To make yeah. sure that, you know, while, you know, that, you know, he had this one time where he had a moment of weakness and there was no way out and he had to kill him. And like, was that during Burns' run? Yes. In the eighties, that yeah, that that he had to kill Zod. Um, I thought, I, you know, I really, I know some people that well, Superman doesn't kill. You know, Superman would never do that. You know what? This Superman does. Okay, they've they've come up with this interpretation. It's just as valid as any other interpretation of Superman. These characters thrive on reinterpretation. If you look at all the different versions of Batman we've had over the years, this is the kind of thing that we had to do, have to do to Superman. To make him, well, not only relatable, but also, you know, um, uh, to give him a, his character a new spin, a new story, a new, a new twist on the story to make it interesting to audiences. I mean, it's, it's the same, same story, but it's not, you know what I mean? It, there, there's subtle changes and differences all, th- all through the narrative to the classic Superman story. But I mean, same thing with the Batman Begins, same thing with Iron Man, you know? It, it's just an interpretation of the character, and I know a lot of geeks are getting bent out of shape, especially about him killing Zod and other things in the movie saying, you know, oh, that, you know, Superman wouldn't do that. Superman wouldn't do that. You know what? Superman did it. It's in the movie. <laughs> to, not to get, oh. not to get too far off on a rant here. If you guys, if you guys ever seen the, the Max, uh, the Max Landis, uh, Death of Superman video. Oh yeah. There's this part where he's talking to his dad, John Landis, and he's like, he's talking to him about the story, and John Landis is like, okay, just stop. What are the rules for killing a vampire? And Mac, little Max Landis says, well, you know, holy water, garlic, steaks, and John Landis stops and he goes, no. They're whatever you want them to be because vampires aren't effing real. Okay? <laughs> you know, Superman is a story and, and, you know, you have so many different interpretations of that story that tell so many different kinds of things. You know, look at All-Star Superman or whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow or Kingdom Come. 
You know, I mean, the character's been used in so many different ways, and there was no outcry then. But we used it in a you know, major movie like this to kind of put a spin on the character, and I thought it was an interesting spin, and I enjoyed the movie. Again, other than the two things I mentioned, uh, I thought it was, you know, a good interpretation of the character. I'm interested to see where they go going forward from this. But, I mean, there was a lot of geek outcry, you know, oh, this isn't my Superman, this isn't the Superman that I know and love. You're right, it's not. It's Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan's Superman. This is the movie they made. And you know what? I thought it was a pretty good movie. Well, yeah, and the thing is, it's not that... It- Superman doesn't. I mean, he did. I mean, the story is there in the books if you if you want to read it. But I think this is right. a, a very good uh, start for them to to show how it shapes his future. How how that one act makes him into the hero that that we all know now. Well, and, and they did a good job of showing that he was tortured over it. I mean, he used every bit of his strength to to try and not get him to kill those people and and to move his head away. And Zod. I think they did an even better job of showing that Zod had to, he knew he had to put Superman in a position to kill him because he knew that he wouldn't stop and he knew Superman would never let him continue. So he knew it had to either end right there or not. Um, and he, he even said so earlier on. He's like, you know, I was born for and bred to, you know, do everything for my people, yes. and now I have no people. Yes. You know, he has that little soliloquy there, and, you know, you know at that point it's going to be either him or Superman, and yeah. I was interested to see how they would get out of that conundrum, and they did, you know, they did the way that they did by having him kill him, but... Um, and just his I reaction. I mean, it was... Yeah, yeah. It, it, this good was, acting there, too. When he kind of cried out like that, I... I I didn't have the same reaction that I did. Spoiler here for Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, but there's a similar, there's a, I won't, I won't actually put it. There's a similar situation where a character yells out uh, another character's name. Um, and to me, it felt very, very cheesy. Um, this, yeah, it it depends who you ask. Some people thought it was fine. Anyway. You um, could also use the example of Darth Vader in episode three yelling no. Yeah. Exactly. This felt very genuine. It felt, very, very genuine. I mean, he was, it had even a little bit of twinge of the whole, um, Donner Superman when, when Lois dies and, you know, he, he kind of has that reaction. Um, he's, he, you could tell it, it wasn't just like, well, I had to do it. He was going to kill those people. Um, you know, I feel bad, but whatever. He, he's really tortured by that. I mean, he did not want to do that. I mean, for a variety of reasons. One, you know, he, I think he has a code, and two, he's he represented the last of his people. I mean, he banished you know almost a dozen or you know dozen and a half of his people to you know to this phantom dimension, um, the the phantom zone, and here he is the the last one that, and he wasn't like evil incarnate, like it wasn't like the the mustache twirling Zod that Terrence Stamp played. I mean, this version was, I have a mission, I was bred for a purpose. Um, I am all about protecting and defending my people. And it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't this maniacal, psychopathic thing. This, you know, this guy legitimately felt in his own mind that he was a patriot um, and that he was he was doing the right thing. So it just, to me, well, it, just, it best, just had a ton of weight. Not, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, they always say the best villains never see themselves as villains. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Like Magneto is a good example. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, to me, I I just I, I thought it was I thought it was extremely well done, and I uh, you know like we've all said it, I think it sets things up perfectly for for what's 
to you know what's to come in the next movie and that you know there are going to be repercussions and i think it just it just strengthens his resolve to try and find a situation or to not put himself in a situation where he has to make that choice again um if you we, we since we're we kind of kind of got to the end pretty quick but <laughs> um <laughs> but to kind of talk about it, one of the, you know one of the things i have in my notes is this is almost like the the non origin story um you know, if you think about it, one of the, I guess one of the criticisms we have a lot of these superhero movies is they spend so much time on the origin, right? I mean, you know, we wait forever to see him get, you know, the hero get in the costume, or we wait, you know, till they get their powers, or we wait till something happens. And this, you, you know, we got the stuff on Krypton in the beginning, then, you know, we see the ship, not even crash land on Earth, we see it, you know, heading towards Earth, ultimately to crash. Um, and then we immediately cut to adult Clark and, you know, he's he's kind of doing these heroic things and then immediately kind of, you know, gets on the, you know, finds the ship and then, you know, finds the suit and starts exploring his powers. Um, and we get the kind of the traditional origin, you know, where in the comics, all that stuff happened in like three panels. And it really started with him being in Metropolis, working for the Daily Planet, um, you know, and, and doing all the stuff. And it was kind of interesting that that happened at the very end. Like we got all the Superman stuff earlier, much earlier. Um, and we kind of get, it's almost like we're going to get the origin of Clark Kent in the next movie. Um, you know, cause we really didn't get, I mean, we, we got what shaped him into being the character that he was as Superman, but we really haven't seen, you know, how he, I think, I think that's one of the negatives of this movie that I had. And, and again, these are going to be nitpicks is that I think the, the Henry Cavill as Clark Kent character kind of got short shrift. Um, we never really got to see. It seemed like every time he got to a moment where we were getting a little introspective, he had a flashback to his youth and, and what happened to kind of, you know, jar that memory or formulate, you know, what he was to become. Yeah, I thought the, even more so, and I noticed this in Superman Returns too, because I recently rewatched it because it was on cable or something, uh, where I was at the, at the time. Um, there were a lot of Jesus imagery in this movie. Um, you know, wandering for 33 years. Uh, when he comes out of the, the Kryptonian ship to go save Lois, he just has that total, you know, uh, to quote Soundgarden, Jesus Christ pose. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, I noticed that in Superman Returns as well and in this, you know, but I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not, not I guess it's an obvious metaphor you know, to go for. Um, I actually, uh, Jim, because uh, in, in Half Hour Wasted, Bill had commented on how he, he thought people were reading into it a bit much, so I sent him. A, basically a list of all the things, all the, uh, you know, Christ imagery from the movie. And, and he kind of redacted and said, you know, he wasn't trying to say it wasn't there. He was just trying to say it wasn't so overt. It was more Easter eggy, which I, which I can understand. There was a lot less of it in this movie than I was expecting from the trailer because most of it was in the trailer. But so here, here's my list. Uh, he reveals himself to the world at the age of 33, same as Jesus. Uh, he literally takes one of the stations of the cross on the oil rig while saving the men. He's the fourth man in the fire on the rig, which is, uh, for anybody who's done much biblical research or anything, um, that would be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was the fourth angel in the fire who wasn't burned along with them, and a lot of biblical scholars believe that to be like the first uh, pre-human, or one of the first pre-human Jesus appearances. Um, He takes a crucifix pose at several points in the film. He's his father's only son, sent to Earth to, quote, save them all. Um, And then when he first... 
excuse me, when he first dons the suit and walks out of that room, um, it's the classical Jesus leaving the tomb image, complete with a circular door. And as you pointed out earlier, this is a very H.R. Giger-styled ship. It's the only non, um, shall we say, uh, very genitalia-influenced door on the whole ship. It's just <laughs> round. And and there, I'm sure there was more than that as well. Well, but, it kind um, of kneels down uh, almost genuflecting when he launches the first time to fly, too. Which, how cool was that, by the way? Harkening back to literally leaping tall buildings in a single bound, you know, back in the old days, Superman could not fly, and having him basically recreate that perfectly as he learned how to fly was really cool. But I I really kind of see this almost as like the Batman Begins for Superman. You know what I mean? It's kind of the anti, like like Russ was saying, it's the anti-origin story. You know, it's how he began, but not his origin. Yeah. And, uh, but, but yet sets the table for everything to come. And, you know, whether they go Man of Steel 2 Justice League or whether they just go with the Justice League movie from here or whatever they did, you know, this is a good jumping off point. Um, personally, I don't know if it's going to do Avengers kind of numbers in the long run. Though. I, I, I don't know if it's going to have that kind of legs. I mean, what do you guys think? What are your predictions for, you know, for gross? Uh, I, I mean, at this point, I, I think worldwide, probably 800 million. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty safe bet. I mean, I don't, I don't think it'll do Avengers numbers, but I don't think it has to. I mean, I, you know, I think that's that's just kind of one of those rare occurrences. Um, I, I think this has some replay replayability, so to speak. Um, I, I think Avengers is just one of those rare cases where people literally were going back. I mean, it's called like the Titanic syndrome, you know, where people were just going back to see it multiple times because there was just so much. There were just so many awesome, you know, moments. This one. Didn't really have that, but I, but that's okay. Um, I, I think it's, it's good enough without it. Some of the other things I have in my notes is, and I think this is the Nolan influence, is that everything is explained. You know, there were a lot of. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it's kind of funny when the movie first started and you're getting this birthing scene and it's just this guy, his wife, and these robots flying around and you're like, what? This is an advanced society. They can't, uh, you know, there's like no doctors or whatever. You, it's like it didn't make any sense. And then we find out later that, well, there's a reason for it, that, you know, he's the first natural born, you know, born Kryptonian in, you know, hundreds of years. And, you know, every, every you know, they, they breed, you know, you know, all these people based on this matrix and everybody has a purpose. You're either, you know, you're bred to be a soldier or a politician or a plumber or, you know, a, a shipbuilder or, what, you know, whatever it is your purpose is. Um, but, but it's all you know, very sterile and it's all just genetic manipulation and everything else. So I thought that was cool. You know, it kind of, it kind of made you question it, um, thinking it was kind of like a plot hole and then boom, they, they explain it. Um, Zod's arrival. I mean, it was like, you know, first you're like, okay, that's coincidental that he just happens to show up at the same time as, you know, Superman reveals himself to the, you know, to the world. How do these guys get out of the Phantom Zone? And we find out, nope, they got out, you know, 33 years ago. They'd just been, you know, going from outpost to outpost and it, you know, once, you know, that, that's the other tragic thing with this whole thing. It's, it's, it's Superman's fault that the villains came or the, you know, the Kryptonians came to Earth. I mean, he is directly responsible for all that destruction, um, you know, unwittingly, but, but he's still responsible for it. Um, although they still would have shown probably. up eventually, just not, yeah, probably as so. That, that's, you know, fair enough. Um, 
and then the whole thing with the you know the the matrix like understanding what that was like when they first did it in the beginning and they put it in him i was just like what is like it just didn't make sense and then again when they kind of explained everybody has a purpose and everything else again you know pretty well done and i think like i said that's more i think the nolan influence i think than uh than maybe the goyer influence because we kind of saw that stuff with batman begins right in the beginning when when bruce is kind of quote-unquote being a criminal and we find out no he was just stealing his own stuff i mean it was just it was things like that that we kind of questioned and he always had an answer to 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 what was going on in that in that world to make it make sense um, so I really appreciated that with with this that there wasn't a whole lot of moments where it was kind of like, you know, oh I got gotcha. you, you you know you screwed up. Well, I particularly appreciated speaking of um, explaining things, how they bifurcated the powers, and in doing so came up with a way to have kryptonite without kryptonite, and a kryptonite that wouldn't, you know, just make everybody. You know, because the problem with Kryptonite, especially in a Krypton versus Krypton battle, or Kryptonian versus Kryptonian battle, is it just brings you back down to human size, and that's no good. Or not human size, but human strength. And by bifurcating the powers and making some some of them solar radiation-based, but some of them Earth's atmosphere-based, and the way they could play with different mixes and matches of those two things, I thought that was really cool. Plus the way cool. they mixed that with the fact that, you know, Clark has had time to adjust. He's had time to... Uh, you know, um, like the where well, when Michael Shannon first gets the thing ripped off of his face, and he, can, he has the X-ray vision, and he can see through everything, and he can't focus on anything, uh, you know, because he hasn't had the time to acclimate to the powers like Clark has. Um, I thought that was cool. He used in tandem with the the bifurcation you're talking about for sure, you know, to kind of explain why you know these Kryptonians, or how these Kryptonians can be taken out without kryptonite, and, and so on. That's the only part, actually, for me, it's kind of funny, and Glenn and I were talking about this last night, where things kind of fell apart a little bit, and I thought, at least for me, were inconsistent, is is that whole atmosphere having that big of an influence on the powers, both positively and negatively, for the heroes and the villains. Um, when, and what it really kind of came to a head for me is when they brought Cal up to the Kryptonian ship, and he immediately gets very weak and he falls over and he's coughing up blood and he can't, you know, he can't breathe. And they say, Oh yeah, that, you know, the environment is set for, you know, Kryptonian. You've been on earth too long. Um, and he became weak and it just seemed like the, his exposure to the environmental system made him lose all of his powers, which I thought was strange. And then when, when Jor-El. Well, he was also on the other side of the moon. So yeah, but not for very long. I mean, you know, Superman, you know, doesn't lose his powers at night. I mean, you know, just because. No, I mean, that's true. But also, if you can't breathe, it doesn't really matter right. how strong you but are. But when they had him screwed, you know, on the table, he I mean, he, he seemed to be breathing OK at that point and adapting more. But he had didn't have the strength to, you know, release himself from the table in the big scope of things. It's kind of minor. But I thought they just played a little fast and loose with the whole what causes the powers, you know, what causes them to have or, ha- or not have powers. Um, and I, I, for me, I just felt a little inconsistent. Well, cause I gotta say, I mean, the bifurcation, uh, thing that you talked about, that never even occurred to me. Uh, I mean, it would make, uh, I guess a, a little bit more sense, but, you know, I, I was the same way. I, I kind of figured that, you know, I don't know, the, uh, that, that since the ship itself was set to Kryptonian environment, that, you know, whatever it is in, in, in the sun also was, was present. But uh, uh, I, I, not, 
well, I was talking to Russ about that, and I guess Russell, you were you were saying that I guess afterwards when they switched the uh, environment, um, I guess he got his powers back, but the others were still weak. Uh, I believe. What? Yeah. But it, it well, was I mean, big, they didn't really I mean, kill I, them, but yeah, I mean, I agree. It was a bit for it. it you know, looking back at that, it definitely is. Oh, I remember what it was. I kind of thought that maybe there was kryptonite somewhere on the ship. That was it. And, and, you know, since it was caught in the explosion, that maybe, you know, some of it attached to itself. And that's maybe how they eventually uh, bring kryptonite in, 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 into the storyline, I guess, in, in Superman 2. Uh, but then again, the question would be, how come it didn't affect the Kryptonian? So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with Russ on this. It's kind of a little bit inconsistent. I didn't pull anything. Or it didn't pull me away from liking the movie anymore or any less. A couple, one of the other Easter eggs that I thought was kind of cool, when they were on Krypton, Jor-El made a nod towards one of his robot companions and called him Kelex. And I always pronounce it Kelex, but Kelex, Kelex, whatever. Um, in the Burn revamp, the little companion robots that Superman had, one of them that he had in the fortress was named Kelex or Kelex or whatever. that, And it was kind of that similar, like, companion... Um, you know, artificial intelligence thing that that uh, that kind of took care of the fortress pretty much when he wasn't around. So I thought that was that was a kind of a cool cool nod. Well, there are a lot of nice little Easter eggs in there. The LexCorp uh, trucks, yes, yes, get blown up in Metropolis, and also the Wayne Technologies uh, satellite. Well, yeah, uh, during during the big fight. Yeah, and there was also a call out to Chloe Sullivan, which I like because I really liked her character from Smallville. There was a. Uh, a Sullivan's truck and tractor repair shop when they did the small Smallville scenes. Which, oh, huh? I missed that. Yeah. Oh, I did not catch that. That's cool. Uh, I, I said I would bring it up before, so why don't I bring up the score now? Um, I, I've listened to... I haven't listened to the whole score since I saw the movie, but I've listened to a bunch of tracks, and there was something I didn't really pick up until I saw how it was used in the movie. I mean, I kind of fell in love with it before I even saw the flick just because of the uh, the, the theme in that third trailer that I guess it was kind of the first full trailer. Um, but after I'd seen the movie and put some thought into it, there's actually two themes in the movie and, you know, Russ, you're saying you didn't really, you know, hear a discernible or Russ or Glenn, I forget who said exactly said you didn't really hear a discernible Superman theme. And I think that's because it doesn't actually exist in the movie until the closing credits. And that's because it's kind of a meta theme there is a human slash earth theme and there is a Kryptonian slash Krypton theme. Um, the Kryptonian theme is those war drums, um, very kind of rock and roll, very metal and also very war and March like. And then the human theme is usually played, not always, but usually played on violins, pianos, softer instruments. Uh, they're two completely different melodies, although they are, they do share some similarities, which I think also plays into some smaller elements of the film that we haven't talked about yet. But you hear them both in that third trailer, the one I really like, and you also hear it in the end credits, and it's where the underlying piano, violin, human theme, which is a different beat, different, you know, different rhythm, different uh, melody, meets that Kryptonian yeah. war drum theme, which also has instrumentation as well. And it's at only at the end of the movie and in that trailer where they come together. And to me, if I'm reading it correctly anyway, Superman's theme is the human theme and the Kryptonian theme played over top of each other. And I really love that. Not only on a, it was a cool theme uh, level, which it was, I really, really enjoy that theme, but on a meta storytelling 
he's finally figured out who he is and it's, you know, you know, to go back to the uh, to the Jesus metaphors and stuff, it's equal parts human and Kryptonian and he's embraced both parts of themselves. But, but I was interested because, like I said, I did love that theme. I have been interested by how many reviews I've read because you, you two are not alone that either said they didn't like the theme or that they didn't notice the music at all. There was a ton of reviews I read that said that. And to me, it was one of the biggest standouts of the movie. And for me, it's it's not that I didn't like it. I, I just didn't feel like it was prominent enough. I mean, and again, I, I think a lot of it just has to do with that John Williams bias. You know, that that Superman theme is just so... Recog- I mean, it's probably one of the most recognizable pieces of music in a movie ever created. I mean, to me, it's more iconic than Williams, what he did with Star Wars or what he's done with, you know, anything else he's he's done in his career or any, anybody else has done in a movie. I mean, that, that music is just so, it's just permeated the, the culture so much um, that, that it, you know, to not hear something of that caliber, I think, is what, it, to me, made it almost just fade into the background. Uh, and that's certainly fair. Hey Russ, would you have rather heard that that theme in this movie? No, no. Yeah. Um, yeah, as the, much I, as I love it, no. Yeah, I'm the same way. I went back and uh, I guess FX was showing Superman Returns about a billion times this weekend, and uh, so I caught it a few times. And just listening to the music and just thinking about this movie, it just it would not have fit. It, it, uh, no. The, the theme kind of, I guess, harkens back to a more lighthearted type Superman, and, and this definitely was not that. Right. Agreed. Well, let's, I guess let's break it up a little bit. Let's play, we'll play a clip here and then we'll kind of talk about it. Cause I think this, this was kind of the, the cause of great controversy if, if there's such a thing for, for a movie based on funny books. But there's a lot of talk about this, <laughs> um, you know, prior to, and this is the clip of, of Pa Kent, um, talking to Clark about him after he saves the bus. You have to keep this side of yourself a secret. What was I supposed to do? Just let him die? Maybe. So the big thing is is just Jonathan Kent telling Clark, you know, Clark asking, you know, should I have let them die? And Jonathan says, well, you know, maybe. But in the movie, and I wish I could have gotten the whole the whole clip, um, to play but in the movie he he really makes a point after that of saying you know you'll change everything i mean you will make people question science religion you know you know you're the answer to you know are we alone in the universe all of these things and you know do you know what's going to happen if people find out about you and in that context to me at least i was i was fine i mean definitely not the jonathan kent we're used to the whole you know, kind of, I mean, it was kind of told, obviously, in reverse, so it was kind of told that Jonathan knew what he would become, that he would become this great hero, and he would, you know, you know, have to, to, you know, protect his identity and all this other kind of stuff, but this Jonathan Kent was like, look, I don't know why you're here, you may never know why you're here, and I think it's important for you to find out, but also, not just, you know, for your own safety, but just for what you being here and people finding out means to the to the universe and to into all of these questions um, that if if a few people had to die to you know either protect that secret or to you know not cause mass hysteria or you know God knows what over over whether these questions are answered or asked 
um, you know, then that, that may be, you know, what, what it takes. And I, I was completely fine with it. Like I, it didn't, it didn't bother me at all. I didn't take it as out of character. Um, and, and when the trailer came out, I, I, you know, we kind of talked about it at the time and I said, well, I don't want to give my opinion on it one way or the other until I, I get it in context of the movie because I think there's more to it. And, you know, sure enough, as I watch it, um, not only, you know, this segment, but other segments, that was definitely the case. Well, and I think you said a very important thing there, and that is in the context of the movie. And I think in the context of this movie, I'm okay with it too. I mean, uh, you know, he's worried about what everyone's going to do when they find out that they're not alone. And, you know, not only for Clark's safety, but, you know, also for the world. And uh, I was totally okay with it. Yeah, I mean... They they really changed up the portrayal of Jonathan Kent here, and and I agree with you guys. I appreciate it. I thought it worked well in the film. You know, Jonathan Kent traditionally, and granted, I'm going mostly by uh, visual media, you know, audiovisual media interpretations. I, I'm not a big Superman guy, so I haven't read uh, you know many comics with him or anything. But he's very often uh, shown the same way that Uncle Ben is shown in Spider Man, which I have read a lot of those comics. In that, you know, it's he's one of those. Wise, you know, wise old men on the hill type thing. He's the, uh, you know, he's the character who can come in to say the perfect thing, has the perfect answer to your question, always has the one hundred percent morally pure thing. You know, he's going to tell you to do, and then dies. <laughs> right, right. Well, yes, that's important for both characters. But what I really appreciate, I appreciate that uh, this about people in real life. Certainly, it gains a lot of spe- respect for them from me and I you know, I love it in fictional characters as well and they're starting to see it more in movies these days especially in the superhero origin ones I think is what they did here which is this is not a man with all the answers but this is a man who has the strength of fortitude to admit it he admits he doesn't know what the right answer is and I think that is far more powerful than having you know your phone a friend that you can always call to say hey am I doing the right thing here it's much more powerful to have a father figure or, or just any person but particularly a father figure character who can say I don't know the answer we need to think about this we need to weigh the pros and cons and that along with his other main lesson to Clark which is a little bit different than than other versions I think were great and that other lesson was not it's not about always doing the right thing and that's important you want to do it as much as you can but it's about self-control and yes that'll probably cause lots and lots of emotional damage to Clark Kent throughout his life particularly how it's portrayed in this movie but I think that was inevitable just given the circumstances it's you have the power to act which means when you don't have to or when, when it's not the right thing to do, you have to keep that power in check. You have to let those bullies mess with you. You have to let this happen and that happen because for the greater good, you have to have the strength, uh, going back to that term again, the strength of fortitude to hold it in. And that is more powerful than being able to throw a punch. It's being able to not throw that punch. And that's what we really saw, despite the 45-minute space-punching action scene at the end, that's what we really got out of this particular Clark Kent, especially at a young age. It's the ability to not throw the punch that he can at any moment. Right, like the scene where he gets knocked down by the bullies and uh, you know, P. Ross helps him up and his dad walks over and as he gets up, you see where his fingers have indented into that steel pipe. Right. Yeah, and, he, and, and Jonathan even says, you know, 
you you know you wanted to hit them and and he says you know yes and he goes part of me wanted you to hit them too <laughs> you know so it, he wasn't immune to understanding what he's going through and that uh you know part of him even though he knows he's telling him one thing he he understands the urge to to do the other um but i i just i just thought it was powerful and the the death scene i thought again uh, very powerful to me um you know just you know we talked about it earlier when when kevin costner is just standing there um and and clark is ready to go after him and he has that anguished look on his face and he just kind of slightly raises his hand and just you know kind of you know pats his you know like he's patting his hand down like you know no just it's it's okay it's you know it's it's okay i know this is going to you know end badly for me but i would rather sacrifice myself than have you expose yourself and and what that is going to cause to you and to every and to everyone else um and the way he just kind of faded away like that i just i thought it was really well done i mean it, it, again it, it it even emphasizes more you know what, his father's death even even though they didn't really dwell on it you know like they did in in the donner movie where you know he literally you know you know, when Pa Kent has a heart attack and, you know, we get the whole scene at the graveyard and he says, you know, all these powers, I couldn't save him. Um, it, we didn't get that dwelling in this one, but it, but it definitely, I think that the emotional impact was in, in the Donner flick, the emotional impact was on Clark's reaction to what happened in this one. The emotional reaction is to Kevin Costner's portrayal of, of his own demise. It was and, him leading by example. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. he d- he died for his belief, and and right. you know what's I guess what's even I guess more showing is that Clark actually held back and didn't save him. Yeah, and I think again that kind of formulates what happened at the end, right? When he when he has Zod, you know, in the headlock, and he's going to kill those people, you know, he he can't, you know, once again he can't take he can't allow inaction. To, to to have the you know this defenseless family you know be killed because he wasn't willing to act. I mean he did that once already and saw the you know the toll it took on him and his family and everything else. And I think at that moment too he just wasn't willing to go that 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 far again. And I, again I thought it was handled handled very well. And at that point the conditions his the conditions that have been placed upon him and I use conditions conditions in the legal sense here in that you can't act until. You know, because you, if you act, if you show yourself, the world is going to react. He, he's met the condition now. He, he's revealed himself. The world is going to react how they're going to react, which I think is going to be very interesting as we go forward in this series. In that, you know, whether he shows himself when he's 18 or when he's 33, nation is going to rise up against nation because of the fact that he exists. Like, there's nothing he can do. There will be chaos throughout the world, I'm assuming, you know, just by how this world is portrayed as a very true-to-life world, bad things are going to happen simply because he exists. He can do good things, but he can't prevent all the bad ones. But this was one case where the condition of don't re- don't act unless you're ready to reveal yourself has been met. It's been fulfilled, and now he can act. He can do what he has to do. In this case, even where he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't want to murder. Um, you know, I mean, and you know, we, we kind of beat this to death already. But you know, the th- it's not that Superman doesn't kill. It's that he doesn't want to kill in any situation, but he had to here. Right. And again, I just thought his his reaction, that, I think you called it, Russ, earlier, a primal scream. He didn't just kill somebody. He just committed genocide. He yeah. just spent 33 years 
wondering and longing, who am I, where do I come from, what is my place in this world and in other worlds, and then he had to destroy that other world in his bare hands, and, and, it, and it destroyed him emotionally. Yeah. One of my, I've kind of kind of gone through my notes here, so I, I guess as, as we kind of work towards wrapping things up a little bit, one of my, my favorite scenes in the whole movie uh, came pretty close to the end, uh, and it's when the general and his his aide, the captain, are driving down the road in this, you know, way out in the desert or whatever, and this this predator drone comes and boom, crashes right in front of them. Um, they get out of the car, they start walking, and and Superman is is there, and he he basically says, you know, you know, you think, you know, basically don't spy on me because you won't be able to. I I can see you coming from, you know further away than you realize and i'll just keep knocking these drones out of the sky costing you millions of dollars all day long and he, and he tells him he says you know i'm willing to help but it's got to be on my terms not on your terms um and he tells him you know and and the general kind of responds that you know he's you know basically distrusting or whatever um and, and i love the way he responds and says i'm from can you know i've i've been here for 33 years i'm from kansas i'm about as american as it can get um i i just i i just I was really hoping I could find that clip somewhere because I, th I think that just really um, puts the, the you know the explanation point at the end of the sentence for me on this movie, um, and I, I just I just thought that was an awesome exchange that they had to to kind of uh, you know show where he's at at, at the end of this movie um, and and kind of what, you know what we've seen of portrayals of Superman recently. I mean, it's very much a you know Justice League animated kind of uh, kind of response you know that we that we saw. In there, but I, I just thought that was that was really really well done. Uh, a couple things I wanted to add before we rate. Um, so obviously, when we talked about the action, we didn't talk about it in too much detail. But Smallville is destroyed in basically the shootout at the uh, Smallville Corral, and then uh, Metropolis is essentially leveled. Like the center of the city, probably about what twenty thirty square blocks, is reduced to dust and so uh, they did some uh, research online and the watson technical consulting firm estimated the actual damage to metropolis based on you know the size of the buildings all that kind of stuff and so they estimate that in the days after the attack 129,000 people would be confirmed killed nearly a million would have been injured and over a quarter of a million would still be missing the impact would uh, be similar to an airburst from a 20 kiloton nuclear explosion in terms of shock effects, but without the radiation or thermal effects. Additionally, some 700 billion, that's billion with a B, in physical damage would be done to the city. Cleanup, economic impact, and other costs would eventually bring the number into the trillions of dollars. So, if they play with this in the next movie, again, you're going back to nations rising up against each other and the rise of Lex Luthor all these kind of things, if they really take this to its logical conclusion, I really want to see the Earth and how it reacts and how it is, you know, irrevocably changed by his presence. I could see, like, LexCorp, like, rebuilding Metropolis, and that would be, like, the, you know, the, the end for Lex Luthor into the, the story of the, the movie, um, they're definitely going to have to deal with all that. Like I said, that was the one part of the movie that kind of kind of uh, dragged on a little long for me. I thought it was just too much disaster porn. Uh, 
I, I mean, it, it looked great. Don't get me wrong. I, I love the, the finally getting to see, you know, see Superman do super things. I mean, that was one of my big gripes of Superman Returns. Is you, you had the, um, the space shuttle scene, and then you had the um, scene at the end. But in the middle, Superman really didn't do a lot of super things. And this, he's all over the place doing super things, uh, fighting super people and stuff. But I agree with you, Jordan. I think that's something they really need to address in the sequel. I mean, they really made a point of showing that destruction. You know what I mean? It could have easily been CGI'd out or whatever. Also ironic that this is the second Zack Snyder movie where there's a Superman and his girlfriend standing in the rubble of a destroyed American city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do have one question. Maybe you guys uh, can answer it. Is uh, the scene where he finds the ship, I guess... I guess it's at the North Pole or somewhere there. Uh, they they showed they specifically showed one of the pods open and empty. Yes, yeah, that's what I was hinting at earlier. As uh, I forget in what context, but interesting. Well, Are do, we descended from Kryptonians? You do know that part of I can't remember where it was produced or what it was done for, but somebody did some promotional thing where, and I, it may not fit exactly, but they've. That's I think it was Goyer was involved in it or Snyder or both, um, a Supergirl story. Right. The the prequel comic. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Was. So I, I a I didn't notice the the empty pod, which is an awesome catch. Um, and B I don't know if that fits because that would have happened. You know that thing's been buried for so long. Yeah, it was like twenty two thousand years. I think yeah, they said yeah. or eighteen thousand something like yeah. that. Well, it could be spun, I guess, because I'm I'm guessing those things are stasis pods, and and I think uh, I want to say I remember that Kryptonians, I guess, on Earth age, I guess, a lot slower than humans. So I guess it could. Yeah, but I think Kara Zor-El was on Krypton like right around the time Clark was born. Right, right. But I'm just figuring if maybe they want to introduce her at some point, that that that's a way in. Possibly. I mean, my thought was more that are they saying that humans are descended from Kryptonians in some way or that Kryptonians, you know, kind of a Prometheus type take on that. Uh, not quite that <laughs> uh, Jesus was a Kryptonian, but that Kryptonians were heavily involved in uh, advancing our civilization. Yeah, they said they seeded a million worlds or whatever. Yeah, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that maybe the the person that quote unquote escaped was able to give evolution the kick to, you know, early man to, to get him to where he is today. I don't know. Interesting, interesting thought. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't think too much about that, but. uh... Also, my one other note I'd left to myself to say in this episode was uh, more than a Man of Steel 2, I want to see the Zod Jor-El prequel. Because I really yeah. enjoyed that entire sequence, and also the later part where uh, Zod got to uh, yell at Space Ghost Jarrell for a while. <laughs> yeah, and then disconnect him. Yeah, yeah. I'm it's arguing like genocide with a ghost. The other thing, a couple things that I have real quick before we go into ratings. Uh, Snyder, we haven't talked about the shaky cam, have we? We didn't talk about that. No. no, or the sna- uh, the f-stop zooms, which was a new technique for him. I don't think he's used that before. Yeah, and some lens flare. I thought you know it might have been a nod to JJ. Yeah, yeah, so I saw that a few times in there too. So Snyder decided for this one because a lot of location shooting, which is again not something he typically does. He's a very, I mean, three hundred sucker punch Watchmen. 
all very heavily green screen movies. A lot of um, a lot of uh, indoor indoor shooting. This one kind of the opposite. A lot of outdoor shooting. A lot of location shooting. Um, so he decided to kind of give it a little bit more of a of a of a softer touch, and went with handheld cams uh, for for the shooting. Um, I think sometimes it worked really well. I think having that. Um, you know, kind of that active participant feel for the for the viewer was nice. I think other times it kind of had a little too much Blair Witch going for it, um, and it could have benefited from a little bit more of a Steadicam uh, thing. But again, um, I kind of, I, I guess I, I give it up a little bit to Snyder for not just falling into the same old mold that he's used to um, and kind of reaching outside his comfort zone, uh, you know, s- cinematically for this one. Um. The other thing is, and Glenn and I both saw it in 3D. I don't know if you, uh, Jim, you said you didn't see it in 3D. Jordan, did you see it in 3D? I saw it in IMAX 3D. Okay. The 3D for me was very neutered. I, um, I like subtle 3D. I like where it's more environmental. I, to me, I felt like there were whole sections of this movie that just had no depth effect to it whatsoever. Um, obviously it was a little more pronounced when they got into the end and the fighting. But overall, this was a very mild uh, 3D performance. And, I, I, you know, again, post-conversion, it wasn't intended to be filmed, you know, that way. Uh, so I, I really wasn't impressed with it. And I think, again, given how much action there was, I think it really kind of detracted from from the experience. I really would like to go see this again uh, in non-3D and just, just see if, if I was able to kind of soak things in a little better. And there are non-3D IMAX showings available, which is kind of rare. Usually if it's a 3D IMAX movie, I'd never see those. But there was at least one on the day I went to go see it. That's the one I saw. It was in the afternoon, and on Father's Day, my wife took me. Uh, It was IMAX, but not 3D. And uh, I'm glad it wasn't in 3D, because like you said, Russ, it seemed like uh, a lot of those effects at the end with all the, you know, rubble and and destruction and everything were kind of cluttered and, and moving really, really fast. I couldn't imagine, you know, them... I probably would have gotten a headache from from motion sickness or something. I'm, uh, but I'm, I, I'm a, I prefer IMAX without 3D, and I'm glad they showed it that way. I, I hope they do that with some other movies too. I had no problem making out what was going on with the 3D, like you guys did. Um, it was very clear to me what was happening. That said, normally I'm able to justify my 3D purchases fairly easily. Oh, this scene was cool in 3D. That scene was cool in 3D. This effect looked nice. Um, with this one though, I don't think it added anything. Like I, I didn't notice it ever, um, while watching the film and not even in a good way. Like it faded into the background. Like I, I just didn't add anything to this for me. And usually, like I said, I can find one or two things and I'm like, okay, that was worth the extra three bucks. Not in this case. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, uh, if I had to do it over again, I definitely wouldn't see it in 3d and uh, I would recommend anybody who hasn't seen it yet to, to, to not see it in 3d. Still check out that IMAX though, if you can find it. I, I definitely recommend. Yeah, I definitely recommend the IMAX experience for that because it, it was nice. Well, cool. Does anybody have any other final thoughts before we give our out of ten ratings? Uh, I'll give mine when I give my rating. So I think I'm good. Mister Mister Green, why don't you go first as our guest? Oh, I thank you so much. I would uh, I would give this uh, movie an eight out of ten. Uh, again, I really enjoyed it. Uh, if I asked my son, who's 11, he'd give it a 10 out of 10, or probably 11 out of 10. Uh, <laughs> you might want to sign him up for some additional math courses. At some point. Uh, you know, uh, I really enjoyed watching with him. I mean, Superman, for me, 
Uh, he's my favorite character. Again, I'm a, I'm a big fanboy, and I and, uh, was really happy I was able to share it with him and that he liked it. Uh, I guess I, I would just say, for me, uh, I, I'm worried already about where Superman 2 will go to. I mean, we've talked about a lot of good stuff, I think, hopefully, where it'll head. The thing that, that, that worries me a little bit is you have such a spectacular physical battle here, uh, and, and I can't see too many other, you know, villains uh, on a physicality level that, at least for me, would top it. Uh, and it seems to me that, you know, in Man of Steel 2, I'm sure we'll probably see Lex Luthor, and that'll be more of an intellectual battle. And uh, I don't know. For me, if it was going to go that way, I'd, I'd like to see maybe Lex and probably Brainiac, uh, you know, at least have somebody that could stand up, uh, you know, at least sort of physically to Superman. But uh, I'm, I'll be there on the day that it opens, no matter what. Senior Dietz? I too will give it an eight out of ten. I enjoyed it again. My my, you know, complaint was the in the. Uh, I saw the third act went on a little long. That's all. I thought it could have been trimmed down pretty judiciously and in, uh, into a two-hour movie rather than a two-and-a-half-hour movie. That's all. Uh, I really enjoyed the acting. I enjoyed the cast. I enjoyed the writing for the most part. I didn't mind the reinterpretation of the character at all. And in fact, these, I feel like these characters thrive on reinterpretation. That's what keeps them, you know, fresh and alive in the pop culture. Um, uh, the effects were great. The uh, the fights were great. I finally get to see you know real Superman versus. Kryptonian type fight, you know, big superhero fight. I think it's one of the best superhero fight sequences I've seen, you know, in a big budget superhero movie, you know, outside of Avengers, maybe. Just, you know, really well done. Again, other than that third act being being a little long, uh, that was my only main problem with it. So an eight out of ten for me. Doctor Esquire. So, uh, long time listeners or even short time listeners will know I'm not a Superman fan. Um, I just have no interest in the character. Not my thing. Um, I, I enjoyed the 78 Donner film. I thought it was fun. It was kind of a cute little thing, but nothing really substantial. I mean, obviously for the time, it was groundbreaking in many ways, um, even above and beyond Marlon Brando's salary. But I was really excited for this movie. Uh, yeah, I've gone on and on about that third trailer. It really grabbed me, and it was just, to me, seeing that trailer was like, okay, this is a Superman that I can finally care about. This is a Superman that is going to get me there opening night for theaters. And granted, I went the next day, not opening night, but still in spirit, it works. Um, and you've already heard me praise. I thought the acting was fantastic, almost entirely across the board. I thought the casting was perfect. I thought the action was incredible. Visually, it was one of the most gorgeous movies I've ever seen. Um, and this really did portray a super powerful Superman. I thought the score was really, really, really good. I, I, I really enjoyed Hot and Simmer's score, um, and I thought all of the emotional moments, whether they were between Clark and um, Jonathan and, and uh, Martha, or whether they were between uh, Kal-El and Jor-El, I thought all of them worked. I thought they were all very effective, and I thought uh, they really served the story well. So, with all those things said, it may surprise you, unless you've already listened to the Jersey Shore episode, that this movie was only barely a net positive for me um, with all the things I loved. And, and like I said, it was a lot of things that I loved about this movie. My score comes down to about a 6.5 because I was incredibly bored for large stretches of this movie. The parts that I loved, which was, you know, a, a good amount of the movie I thought were pretty much perfect. They were great. The emotional stuff, the action stuff, 
but there was just large stretches that I did not care. And it's rare for me to be like looking at my, uh, you know, quote unquote watch, which I don't have, but my, my phone or whatever. And I'm not actually pulling out my phone in the theater. That'd be rude. But where I'm just, I'm cognizant of, man, this has been going on a while or oh, man, could they get to something interesting or at least back to punching somebody? I was really bored for large portions and I don't know why I can't point to any one or two things in the, in the movie that did that. I think it really boils down to pacing, particularly for the first half or maybe the second act in particular of the movie. But for all the things I loved, it was barely a net positive. And that kind of really disappoints me because I thought this could finally be a super Superman movie for me, a Superman story period that would interest me. And it almost was, it could have been, but pacing and boredom issues made it not be that. So I'm disappointed but I like like you guys said, I am hopeful for you know Man of Steel two or whatever comes next. Uh, you know if they can get a better story, and not not just a story, but a better pacing for a story that really picks up on all the um, pieces that this movie put in place, which I thought it did well. Then maybe I'll have a Superman story that I can care about. But this just wasn't it. Interesting. Well, I will give it an eight, just like uh, Glenn and Jim. I. I it was it was really good. It wasn't amazing. It wasn't awesome. It didn't completely blow me away. Um, but there were, there were just a lot of really really good things uh, in this. I think this is Snyder's best movie to date. Um, I think this positions DC in a good spot moving forward. Whether they again move forward with either a Justice League movie or a, you know obviously a sequel to this one is is kind of a foregone conclusion at this point. But whether they decide to spin off either a Flash movie or a Wonder Woman or whatever, um, whichever way they go, I think this positions them in a good spot. And I think if they can um, feed off of the energy that this movie, and, and mostly you know positive at least by the populace buzz, I think they'll they'll be in a good spot to be a little more competitive on the on the feature film side than than Marvel. So overall, good. One of the things uh, just real quick too, I, I, I want to add is. Um, I like the whole Lois knows who Clark is thing. Yes. To me, the whole trying to figure it out and him always disappearing and all that other nonsense, that's such an old, like, golden age slash early silver age trope that, um, to me, that just would just drag the story down. It just makes it nonsensical. Um, if know, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Exactly. She should exactly. know better. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Absolutely. So to me, it just, it, it, it just gets that out of the way. We're done. We move forward. If anything else, it enhances the fact that Clark can kind of disappear now and then um, and have somebody else that can actually cover for him. So um, I, I thought that was very smart. Very, very smart. And how great was the line, welcome to the planet? Yes, exactly. A little Goyer eye-rolly, but I thought it worked. As well yeah. as I thought the, um, the basically it was a ripoff of Speed, but when they have their kiss uh, in the crater of Metropolis... And uh, basically say the same line Speed did. I thought, again, kind of eye-rolly, but it kind of worked. And then the line after that, which I forget what it was already now, but whatever line it was really bought it back and kind of pointed out the fact that that was a rid- ridiculous line and, and, and saved it. Yeah. So that's that's it for me. So uh, are we are we Man of Steel'd out? I am. I don't know why everybody's so bent out of shape about this documentary about smelting. I mean... I live in Pittsburgh. Smelting is no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us uh, for this 
episode of Real Heroes on Man of Steel. Um, if all goes well, we're about six-ish weeks away from the Wolverine, so I'm really hoping we can get Cowboys and Aliens uh, in, in between, so at least we could spin the Wheel of Fate one more time before we do Wolverine, because we know how much Jim loves it. Why am I the one who's against the Wheel of Fate? <laughs> <laughs> you always roll your eyes. I'm just waiting for a good movie. <laughs> Maybe we'll get it this time. Um, so anyway, so thanks for joining us. As always, check out hhwlod.com where you can find all the podcasts, uh, reviews, um, blogs, everything cool up on the, on the website, the newly designed, newly relaunched website. Um, once again, hhwlod.com. So Glenn, thanks for joining us. Hopefully, uh, with Mr. M on hiatus for a while, maybe, uh, maybe you can be available a little, little more often until your, um, to your big exodus from, uh, from Kentucky. <laughs> To Atlanta. <laughs> yes. I would love to, and I really pre- uh, appreciate you guys having me, and uh, I'd love to talk about Superman. It's always Anytime. a pleasure, sir. All right, that's about does it, so thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Good night.